Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's expected victory in South Carolina after his keynote speech on Friday at CPAC, in which he referred to himself as a proud dissident and a total genius. We'll discuss how this year's gathering of right-wing activists was lackluster compared to earlier conclaves, signaling Trump's flagging appeal in the general election as he makes strides in the primaries with the MAGA faithful. Joining us is Tom Lobianco, a national political reporter for 24 Sight, covering Trump's third run for the White House. He's the author of the biography of Vice President Mike Pence, Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House, and his writing has appeared in Vanity Fair's The Hive, The Washington Post, Yahoo News, Politico magazine, and more. He previously covered the Trump-Russia investigation and the White House for the Associated Press and the 2016 campaign and Congress for CNN. And we will assess the chances of the vice presidential hopefuls auditioning to be Trump's running mate in spite of Trump having tried to have his previous vice president killed. Then we'll examine the rural-urban divide and get an analysis of why the Democrats aren't making inroads into red state America while the Republicans get 69% of the rural vote without doing anything to help rural folk, instead doing a lot to harm them. Joining us is Paul Waldman, a journalist and opinion writer who is a former columnist at the Washington Post and the author or co-author of four previous books on media and politics, including Being Right is Not Enough, What Progressives Must Learn from Conservative Success and The Press Effect, Politicians, Journalists and the Stories that Shape the Political World. His latest book, co-authored with Tom Schaller, is White Rural Rage, The Threat to American Democracy. Then finally, we'll look into the latest round of sanctions against Russia following the murder of the opposition leader Navalny and explore how Putin's main source of funds for his war in Ukraine comes from discounted and smuggled oil, which China, India and Brazil are buying to keep the country's economy afloat. Joining us is Christine Abley, a professor at New England Law School teaching contracts and international business transactions. She has worked at several law firms in business litigation and international trade and sanctions law and is the author of The Russia Sanctions, The Economic Response to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate and commercial free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Tom Lobianco, who's a national political reporter for 24 Sight, covering Trump's third run for the White House. He's the author of the biography of Vice President Mike Pence, Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. And his writing has appeared in Vanity Fair's The Hive, The Washington Post, Yahoo News, Politico Magazine, and more. He previously covered the Trump-Russia investigation and the White House for the Associated Press and the 2016 campaign and Congress for CNN. And his latest podcast at 24 Sight 
Episode 1 is The Rise and Fall of CPAC, featuring the former CPAC Communications Director, Ian Walters. So, welcome to Background Briefing, Tom Lobianco. Thank you, Ian. Thank you so much. So, on Saturday at Mm -hmm. CPAC, Donald Trump talked about the Biden-Stalinist-Show trials and said, I am a dissident, I guess trying to align himself with uh, Navalny. Of course, the last thing that Putin do would be to murder Trump as he had murdered uh, Navalny. So how did, yes. how did how do they see this? I mean, do they really... It looks as if this grievance tour about him being persecuted is working. What was the mood in the in, at CPAC? Well... Um, you know, I laugh about this as a, you know, somebody who's been covering for eight years now. Um, it, it is a tried and true tactic that whatever people say about him, he just says it back. He, you know, he reflects it back. Um, the energy at CPAC this year, uh, you know, of course, CPAC is the long-running uh, conservative political action conference, which which used to be uh, a gathering ground for um, all the different factions of the Republican Party, the conservative movement, um, you know, really an expansive uh, crowd. Um, it, it's dwindled, you know, year after year. Um, and this year, uh, the mood was just depressing in there when I was in there. Now, that was, you know, it was, um, walking the halls on Thursday, um, they radio row, which is where a lot of the uh, conservative talk radio hosts were, um, used to have, you used to have Fox news, uh, do a live setup and they would broadcast live from there, um, has been cut in half. Um, and depending on who you talk to and, you know, Ian, Ian, Ian Walters and I, uh, talked about this, um, on, on the, the inaugural 24 site podcast, um, it's a question of whether, you know, how much of that is related to it just being about one person now, how much of that is because it's only about Trump, um, versus, you know, how, how much was it always going to head that way? And of course, too, on top of all of that, you have the sexual assault lawsuit um, uh, hanging over the chairman of CPAC's head, uh, Matt Schlapp. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, to me, as, as a political historian, as somebody who you know, it, it covers this stuff, enjoys writing about it and trying to understand it, CPAC has been very important in America, and certainly in Republican politics, and, and, and definitely in American politics. I mean, it was founded to help elect Ronald Reagan president. And for years, it used to train college students, uh, college Republicans, young Republicans, to kind of funnel them into the into the movement. Um, but all that's gone now. I, it was surreal. And I was walking through the exhibition hall, and it's just like it was cavernous. Um, yeah. I, I've never seen it like that before. Well, but Matt Schlapp, the head of CPAC, his, he's being accused of sexually molesting a, an aide, right? Um, yes. A male aide, I mean. Mm-hmm. And it seems pretty extraordinary that given how homophobic the Republican Party's become, people like Mike Johnson are obsessed with homosexuality. And, and also, it seems like at this CPAC, they're also obsessed with trans issues. Yes. They've been ranting on about that. 
And of course, the conservative actress Posobiec joyfully hailed the end of <laughs> end of democracy. Uh, I mean, you, yeah. you have to laugh, but it's serious. These people actually believe this stuff. But my understanding is that what CPAC's largely about now, since there's not much drama and you've really explained it all, and while you were, by the way, while you were interviewing the former CPAC communication director, Ian Walters, they unfurled the big banner of, uh, <laughs> of Trump's mugshot. But the only drama is who, and of course, you know, you've got people like Tim Scott and all these others vying to be vice president. That seems to be the only, only issue here is who's he going to choose yeah. as the VP. And then you've got, of course, on Saturday, the primary in South Carolina with mm-hmm. you know, Nikki Haley. It's just a question of how much she's beaten by with Tim Scott, <laughs> the current senator, helping out Trump against the state's former governor. So what do you make of that, though, the competition and the auditioning <laughs> of these people? And by the way, Trump just mentioned six of them. Uh, he mentioned Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, Governor Christy Noem, Ron DeSantis, and Tulsi Gabbard. And of course, two of those would be automatically disqualified by the Constitution. Byron Donalds and DeSantis, because they're from Florida. So let's talk about the. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, frankly, I'm sorry to talk so. I know I'm going on a bit. But why would anybody want that job, which is clearly hazardous, given that Trump. (laughs) <laughs> tried to have his former vice president, Mike Pence, killed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, well, real, so I want to do the beefsteaks uh, thing here in a second. But before we do that, when we so we were sitting down when we taped the podcast on Thursday evening, we were sitting at the hotel bar um, at the convention center um, in suburban uh, Maryland, uh, suburban D.C., um, which for years, this was like a, a, a famous hangout uh, for conservatives, conservative activists, Republican activists, presidential campaign staff, you know, all the people that are kind of in the mix on the right. And um, what was surprising to me, and I think this kind of gets at this critical dynamic here, is when the, the, the people you know unfurled this banner with uh, uh, the mugshot of Trump, you know, ironically, it says never surrender because, you know, which of course it's a, it's a photo of Trump because he surrendered. Uh, And there were probably 36 people in the hotel bar. Um, I mean, there could have been many, many more. There's just not a lot of energy for it. And some people hooted and hollered um, and they cheered a little bit, but not much. And, you know, we're sitting there, um, Andrew Feinberg, who's a White House correspondent at The Independent, um, he was sitting with us, joined us for the podcast. Um, And we just were, it's interesting to see the lack of energy for the Trump movement right now, especially versus eight years ago, and really even four years ago, heading into the reelection. I just... And this is everywhere I go. I've been to a few of his rallies this cycle. Um, the rooms are smaller. Um, they tend to be less packed. Um, there's just not as much energy as there used to be. And I don't know whether that translates into a lack of votes for him. 
in November. Um, but it does the the interest in the energy seems to be waning among his own people um, in, in his right. world. But why um, is he the front runner though, Tom? <laughs> and he's getting well, he, by the front runner by a huge margin, mm -hmm. as, as, as Nikki Haley found out. Well, yes. Okay, so um, it is because number one, we're talking about Republican primary electorate here. Um, and, you know, most polling does show him, you know, of all, you know, the, the entire universe of Republicans, people will go with him, generally speaking, more than any, you know, more, more than anyone else. Um, uh, some of that could be due to not really having um, other options. I mean, Haley controls as as the last remaining candidate um, really you know, running against him here. Um, and she is she seems to have consolidated. Uh, the factions of the party, or it's like the old the party establishment. Trump is Trump is the new establishment. He controls the, all the different levers now. Um, Haley has a lot of the old conservatives, um, Reagan era conservatives, um, and that's a sizable that's a sizable voting block inside the party. But you know, remember. It wasn't that long ago that Ron DeSantis was still in the race. <laughs> Hardly ever think about him anymore. Um, but, you know, there was a point where this party really looked like it was ready to move past Trump and take any somebody, anybody um, other than him. Uh, he was damaged goods. Um, some of this has to do with kind of the, the victim effect here. Um, you saw a like a, a GOP muscle memory that he's created. It's it's kind of it's, it's remarkable, you know. With the, especially you know coming out of you know, starting from the Trump Russia investigations years ago, um, it, he created this muscle memory of saying it's a witch hunt, it's a hoax, et cetera, et cetera. And among his supporters, it, it kind of it triggers that because it's a message that is repeated constantly. Um, you know, Fox News is on board with it, as is the rest of the uh, the conservative media uh, ecosphere. Um, and after Alvin Bragg issued that the, the first ever criminal indictment of a former United States president, um, you know, for the general electorate, obviously it, it does, that does not do good for him. But among Republicans, it it gave him a spike. It, it pushed him out ahead of DeSantis. And that's almost a year ago now. And ever since then, it's been reflexive. Um, you know, he takes boxes and boxes and boxes of classified documents and you know, stashes them in his bathroom behind like a golden curtain or something. And, um, you know, he's the victim in that in that world. And, you know, again, I, I, this is the way I look at it is you know, holistically here. Um, that's the Republican electorate, which is, the, you know, which is a, a, a sizable plurality in this country, but not majority. And there are problems that they face heading into a general election. Right. Uh, you know, can they can they brush all that away? I, I don't know that they can. Well, let's talk, though, in the last few minutes here, Tom, about the uh, vice president uh, sweepstakes here with all these people auditioning. As I mentioned, <laughs> uh, Trump himself mentioned Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Byron Donalds, Governor Christie Noem, Ron DeSantis and Tulsi Gabbard and Byron Donalds and DeSantis being from Florida would be automatically disqualified by the Constitution. Tim Scott, of course, is just shamelessly <laughs> sucking up to <laughs> the big guy. 
But I don't. Th the one person missing, of course, is Elise Stefanik, who's auditioning very aggressively. Yeah. But knowing Trump, uh, I think basically she doesn't have a chance because she's not as attractive as Christy Noem or yeah. Tulsi Gabbard. What do you think? Oh, I hear that repeatedly from my Trump sources. Um, you know, we we ranked um, over a twenty four site. We issued our beef steaks rankings um, a couple days ago, uh, and I'll tell you, I, I put uh, Ben Carson at the top of the list. Um, he's you know, put pun intended here. He's very much a sleeper candidate. Um, so a lot of that, when I was talking with my sources for this, you know, the one thing that I hear, a couple things I hear repeatedly, and I think these are the critical dynamics. Remember, Trump is just throwing stuff out there at this point, as as he often does. That's great standard operating procedure for him. Um, you know, he mentions a bunch of people who, you know, uh, DeSantis and Byron Donald. I mean, you know, the 12th Amendment makes it pretty much impossible for that to happen unless somebody changes residency. Um but if you, you know, talking to the people around him, people who have known him for a while, um, Trump is Trump likes people that don't upstage him. So I think right off the bat, that gets rid of um, people that are floating themselves, uh, like uh, uh, Representative uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You can pretty much take her out of the mix. Um, Carrie Lake, to a lesser degree, I'm not really sure about her. But, you know, Carson's really interesting because I hear his name repeatedly from different corners of Trump world and the Republican party and the conservative movement. You know, remember Trump still has to uh, hold on to the, the evangelicals kind of the Christian right. Um, and Carson is a, is a bridge to that world. He used him a lot in the, um, in the Iowa caucuses in the, the lead up to the Iowa caucuses. Um, and the so is Tim Scott though, isn't he? He's not he very religious. Mm -hmm. He is, but he doesn't play with that crowd as much. I mean, you know, what's interesting about that is that Tim Scott's run for president was premised on that idea. Mm -hmm. And and it turned out to not to not really work for him, at least. It was mm -hmm. premised on the belief that they could go after um, uh, disenchanted um, evangelical voters in Iowa who make up, you know, the, the, the biggest block of votes among the Republicans there. Um, it didn't work. It didn't work for him. It didn't work for Pence. That was the Pence strategy. It was really all of their strategies. You know, DeSantis was hoping that would work. Didn't work for him. Um, Carson is different. And the other thing to consider here, too, is Trump is going into this having known a lot of these people for almost a decade now. Uh, and I was told that um, he still feels, you know, quote unquote, he feels burned by Mike Pence. Um, which is interesting because <laughs> he very clearly burned. I mean, <laughs> he wrote a tweet that said yeah, right. the protesters put, put a target on him. To kill him. <laughs> <laughs> God help us. Well, well Tom, we got to wrap this up. We run out of time, but uh, I'll I'll follow this with you because it's all it's, it's the only thing that anybody can talk about with the Trump campaign is who's going to be the VP. Uh, given how inevitable it is that he seems to be the nominee. So thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian. And again, let me speak with Tom LaBianca, who is a national political reporter for 24 Sight, covering Trump's third run for the White House. He's the author of the biography of Vice President Mike Pence, Piety and Power, Mike Pence and the Taking of the White House. And his writing has appeared in Vanity Fair's The Hive, The Washington Post, Yahoo News, Politico Magazine and more. 
and he previously covered the Trump-Russia investigations and the White House for the Associated Press and the 2016 campaign in Congress for CNN. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the rural-urban divide and get an analysis of why the Democrats aren't making inroads into red state America while the Republicans get 69% of the rural vote without doing anything to help rural folk, instead doing a lot to harm them. Everybody loves cowboys and clowns You're everybody's hero for just a little while But when the goodbyes are said And the spotlight goes dead There's no one left who cares to hang around To love the cowboys and clowns Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org And joining us now is Paul Waldman, a journalist and opinion writer whose work has appeared in dozens of newspapers, magazines and digital outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, The Week, MSNBC and CNN. And he's the former columnist at The Washington Post and the author or co-author of four previous books on media and politics, including Being Right is Not Enough, What Progressives Must Learn from Conservative Success and The Press Effect, Politicians, Journalists and the Stories that Shape the Political World. World. And his latest book, just out on Tuesday, co-authored with Tom Schaller, is White Rural Rage, The Threat to American Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Waldman. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And your book points out that in 2022, Republican candidates got 69% of rural votes, even better than Donald Trump did in 2020, which in turn is even better than he did in 2016. But the reality on the ground is that both parties have abandoned rural America, Democrats because they often give up on winning there, and Republicans because they can win there without any effort. So that's the conundrum, and what's the, what is the answer on the part of the, the Democrats? Why are they relinquishing that huge vote in rural America? Well, that's the half of the story that usually is the only half that gets told. You know, Democrats are constantly being lectured about how you need to go into rural areas. You need to kind of renew your presence there. Uh, and the if you don't do that, not only are you suffering electorally because of that, but there's a kind of a moral judgment that comes along with it, that these are the truest Americans. And there's something really deeply problematic about Democrats not working harder to get their votes, even if they are the people that are least likely to vote for them. Now, you'll notice nobody lectures Republicans about going into cities, uh, you know, meeting, let's say, urbanites, African-Americans, young people who live in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles. That's not something that anybody ever tells Republicans they have to do because those are the voters least likely to vote for them. Now, let's think about what is actually going on in rural America with, relate, with relation to the parties. As you said, uh, Democrats in many, many rural areas uh, are losing by significant margins. And so they don't really bother to go in because, you know, parties and candidates always have scarce resources. And they look at a situation where they say, OK, well, this is an area where it's about 65-35 Republican Democrat. Even if we get a few more votes, it's not really going to do anything for us. So why should we bother wasting our time? And on the other side, Republicans, who are the ones who keep getting elected time after time after time, 
they barely have a campaign at all either. And that I think is the missing piece that that people don't understand and the piece that's that becomes deeply problematic because Republicans don't need to put up any kind of a fight. They're not really threatened. And so uh, they don't have a deep presence in people's lives. They don't have really active campaigns. They just show up at the, you know, a couple of weeks before the election and say, don't you hate those liberals and those urbanites down in the state capitol? Vote for me and I'll stand up for you. And then people do vote for them. The problem is that there ends up being no accountability at all. There's no electoral competition. Nobody is working hard to get the votes of uh, of those people in rural areas. And there are no demands that are being met or promises that are being made of any kind of meaningful substance. And so, you know, rural America, I could talk to you for a long time about the, the deep troubles facing rural America today. And they uh, are certainly not having their problems with it's in infrastructure or healthcare or education, the Republicans whom they keep electing over and over and over again aren't really doing anything to solve those problems. And in a different kind of a situation where there was more competition, the voters would say to their representatives, hey, you know, we elected you two years ago, four years ago, and you didn't do anything about this. We're still having the same problems that that, uh, that we had before. If you want us to give you your votes again, you're going to have to come up with something. And if not, we're going to vote for somebody else. But that's not what happens because there's really only one party. The Republicans don't do anything. And all that that remains of politics in so many places is this expression of anger. That's all it is. You go to the polls every few years and you make some kind of a, a, a kind of a grunt of resentment to say who you hate uh, and who you're angry at. And then nothing ever changes. Well, that is the Trump campaign, though, isn't it? To uh, engender uh, anger. Absolutely. And and this is the interesting thing, you know, uh, for so long, Democrats especially, but everyone has been told that, you know, how do you get the support of people in rural America? Well, you have to go there. You have to listen. You have to have a presence. You have to show people that you understand their lives. And candidates, you know, they go, they put on a Carhartt jacket, they go to somebody's farm, they talk about commodity prices, they get down on a little stool, they milk a cow. And it's all meant to show that they really empathize with rural people and understand what they're going through. And Donald Trump didn't do any of that. He didn't get down and milk a cow. Uh, as I was saying in the book, the only time he's going to bend over is to pick up a golf ball. But it turned out that that wasn't actually what rural voters were looking for. They didn't need you to empathize with their lives and understand them. What they wanted was somebody who would channel their anger and their rage. And, you know, and Donald Trump told them a, a persuasive story, which we have to acknowledge. Uh, he said to them, the system is rigged. Both parties are part of it. Uh, you've been getting the short end of the stick, and I'm going to stand up for you. Now, the last part of that was the lie. The lie was that Donald Trump would actually do something to change that situation. He was not never going to. You know, what was his one legislative accomplishment? He, it was a giant tax cut for corporations and the wealthy. Uh, but the the critique that people in rural America and small town America and the Rust Belt and a lot of places had basically been abandoned and that the economic changes of the last few decades had really hurt them. Uh, and neither part and both parties were complicit in that in one way or another. That was true. And so people said, yeah, yeah, you're right when you tell us that. Uh, but here's the thing, though. So he told them that story. And then four years later, he hadn't improved their lives. They hadn't, they, you know, they didn't have more economic opportunity. They didn't have a more robust healthcare system. They didn't have better infrastructure. They didn't have better education. They didn't have any of those things. But guess what? They voted for him in even greater numbers. You know, Donald Trump. Uh, went 
declined from 2016 to 2020. Obviously, he squeaked out of a, uh, a victory in the Electoral College in 2016. In 2020, he lost by 7 million votes or whatever it was. Uh, but in rural areas, he actually gained votes. We looked at the his 100 strongest counties throughout the country. Almost all of them are rural. They tend to be small places where he won 80%, 85%, 90% of the vote. And in 91 out of those 100 counties, he actually got a higher percentage in 2020 than he did in 2016. So he didn't really help them. He provided them a kind of emotional satisfaction, and that was enough to make them turn out for him in even greater numbers than they had the four years before. But he actually hurt them with his trade war against China. There was an uptick in rural and farm bankruptcies. He did. And there's an interesting study that just came out from the National Bureau of Economic Research that looked at county by county what the effects of of that trade war was. And what it found was that the promises he made about, oh, this is going to bring back all these manufacturing jobs, that didn't happen. No increase in jobs. In a lot of places, it hurt jobs because there was a there, were, there was a perfectly predictable retaliation from China, and that hurt U.S. exports. And so actually, jobs went down a lot of places. But it turned out that in those kinds of affected communities in the heartland, it actually provided a political benefit for him. So the problem, so it's it's kind of a repeat of what happened in the in the big picture, which is that the trade war didn't help anybody, but uh, but the people that it was targeted at decided that they got some kind of kind of emotional satisfaction from it. Yeah, he's sticking it to China, even if it was going to hurt them in material terms. They still liked it, and his support went up. So that's the kind of picture that we see, and I think that is also a product of people's expectations from about what they're going to get from politics being sucked dry of anything meaningful. Uh, and that I think is, is a profound problem in a lot of different ways in rural America that people don't expect that politics is a place where they can actually affect the material conditions of their life. It's just a place there where you can show whose side you're on and who you're mad at. And you don't have to hold politicians accountable when they don't actually help you. But you mentioned, uh, Paul Wallman, uh, commodity prices, and it seems to me that there, there is a structural problem here that impacts rural America and red state America in as much as it's the middlemen who make all the profits. It's the, like the meatpacking industries that, you know, the farmers that sell their cattle, pigs, and poultry, the powerful meatpacking monopolies are able to force the, them to accept whatever the market will bear, and they get screwed, and Wall Street celebrates, and rural America gets hosed. And that seems to systemic, but is there an awareness of that? I mean, who the real enemies are here, or where the real problem lies? You know, I think there there is a disconnect. People understand that. They understand, for instance, the the way, just to take one example, uh, the the market for chicken farming has changed, and that now you have farmers who are almost indentured servants to companies like Purdue and Tyson, where they enter into these agreements, they take on a huge amount of debt, uh, and they're working themselves to the bone for just a paltry amount of money. But then the question is, can you then connect that to the larger political uh, the larger political situation? And that's where the real disconnect happens. Because you know who is it who, uh, who has done so much damage to rural areas? It's capitalism. That's what it is. It's those companies like Purdue and Tyson. You know, the the this is one of the things that we say that all the all the people that rural Americans are told to be mad at, they're not the ones who hurt them. Immigrants didn't destroy the family farm. It was Cargill and Conagra. 
uh, black people in cities didn't pour opioids into rural areas. That was another set of corporations. Gay people aren't the ones who are limiting economic opportunity in small towns. It's the, the real problem that they have is with capitalism. It's not with socialism. Socialism isn't hurting them. It's capitalism that's hurting them. So they can see it on the ground, and I think they understand that, but uh, but they don't then connect it to a larger the larger issue. So let me give you an example. One of the places that we reported from was in West Virginia. And you know, if you look at the history of coal in West Virginia, which is still dominant, has a kind of psychic domination over the whole state, especially certain areas of the state. Uh, there was a, a real understanding for a long time that there was there was a central conflict there between workers and companies. And a uh, hundred years ago, it was intensely violent, really shooting at each other, people dying in some of these uh, these unionization drives. Uh, and then what happened was. You know, you had the New Deal, which uh, passed a lot of laws about labor, and that actually created kind of a, a very brief sort of golden moment where workers had more rights and the uh, United Mine workers were really strong. And uh, being a coal miner could create a middle class life for people. Uh, you didn't need a lot of education, but you could work in a mine. You could make a middle class living. You could own a home. You could provide for your family, take a vacation. And then what? And then you got this kind of erosion as the power of the unions began to diminish. Ronald Reagan wages what's really a war on union unionization in America. That gets uh, it, you know, it gets stronger and stronger. The uh, companies, the coal companies, create this thing called Friends of Coal, and for a long time, probably still today, you know, you go to any kind of county fair or whatever, there's going to be a Friends of Coal booth, and it was a, this gigantic PR effort. The purpose of which was to convince people that the line of conflict wasn't between workers and the companies. It was because between workers and companies on one side and those nasty environmentalists from out of state on the other. And that's who you should be mad at. You should be mad at hippies and liberals and tree huggers. And don't get mad at the company that is not paying you enough, that is eliminating these jobs, that is, you know, having you work in very dangerous situations that is giving you black lung, that's not the people you should be mad at. You should be mad at the hippies. And it was an extremely successful campaign. And so if you go now to those places uh, in West Virginia, I mean, first of all, the coal jobs have mostly disappeared. And that's a whole other political story. You know, uh, there was a time when there were 700,000 Americans who worked in coal mines. Today, uh, it's about 40,000. There are more Americans who work at the cheesecake factory and work in the entire U.S. coal industry, and uh, so those jobs have gone. But yet, people like Donald Trump come and every four years, and they promise that they're going to bring the coal jobs back. And Trump came to to West Virginia in 2016, put on a hard hat, and said, and I quote. For those miners, get ready because you're going to be working your asses off. And everybody cheered. And did he bring the coal jobs back? No, he did not. There were fewer right. jobs in coal when he left office than when he came into office. But they didn't right. care. They wanted right. to hear the lie. They probably knew it was a lie. But they still it was still what they wanted to hear. And they didn't expect anything more. Right. And Mexico was going to pay for the wall. But you could go back even further, though, Paul Wallman, to the Gilded Age in the 1890s, 1900s, with William Jennings Bryan running for president on essentially a coalition of rural and urban poor. And that's when there was such a thing as a, as a Christian left as opposed to a Christian right. And I, I'm sure that there is a connection between everything you brought forth in your new book 
white rural rage and Christian broadcasting because that's all you have in these rural areas. You only have Christian broadcasting and Fox News and occasionally a public radio station in a college town. Yeah, that's a key part of the story, too. Uh, and this is a this is a story all across America, the way that the uh, newspaper industry in particular uh, has just been utterly decimated, that small town newspapers are going out of business one after another. The ones that survive have probably been bought up by a, a big conglomerate or a private equity firm, and they fire all the reporters and just run some wire stories. And so you do not have an active uh, local news uh, structure there that is going to tell you what's going on in your area, that's going to report on what's happening in City Hall. And when you eliminate that, first of all, corruption flourishes, because if there's nobody walking around City Hall asking questions, then they know they can get away with anything. You know, there's I think there's a big misconception that a lot of Americans have that the corruption happens in Washington and the officials who are closer to them, the state and local officials, they're the, they're the clean ones. It's actually the reverse. There's much more corruption at the state and local level. And part of it happens because nobody's really watching. And so that's a problem. But it also just kind of disconnects people from what's happening in their area, especially those those issues that may not fall along clean partisan lines, you know, like, are we going to build a new park? Uh, you know, what should we do about the, the school funding? What should, uh, you know, should there be some new lights down on Main Street? Those are issues that don't necessarily have kind of a partisan valence to them. But in the absence of that, what do people get? Well, they get Fox News and they get conservative talk radio. And conservative talk radio absolutely dominates in rural areas. There's a mini Rush Limbaugh in every little town. And they are telling you over and over again that what matters is the national issues and what matters is the divisions between you and your lifestyle and who you are and those mean, nasty people in the cities, which are hell holes of crime and depravity, and the, you have nothing in common with them and cannot reach across any kind of partisan lines for any sort of solution. All you need to do is stay mad. And so, yes, you're right. It is a media story as well as a, a political story. So just in the last couple of minutes, sir, there was a Brookings Institution study that made clear there are clear solutions for what's happening in rural America and what would uh, help rural Americans, which is uh, good schools, strong infrastructure, especially broadband, the availability of family planning to reduce teen pregnancy, allow women to delay having children. And the irony is, of course, the Republican Party wins overwhelming majorities of the rural vote when all of their policies undermine these very goals, rural broadband, a couple of governors in Nebraska and South Dakota won't even take free federal money to feed the poor. And of course, they all want to kill the Affordable Care Act and get rid of contraception and pass these abortion bans. So there is the disconnect. In other words, the study tells the Democrats what is needed, but somehow they're not stepping up. Yeah, and you know, Democrats have, uh, I think, a lot of trepidation. But but here's the, here's the thing about it, though, uh, they do actually try. And if you look, you know, every Democratic candidate for president has a rural development plan. You can go to their website and you can look at it. Uh, the Biden administration has started uh, in all of its big pieces of legislation that it's passed, like the American Rescue Plan uh, and the Infrastructure Bill. There are big rural programs in there, a lot, billions and billions of dollars targeted to development, to things like broadband, which is really important. That's something that as we were traveling around the country, people brought that up again and again. And I know, the, you know there are some people 
uh, in this space who kind of poo-poo that is like, oh yeah, everybody talks about broadband. But people kept mentioning it to us. It's like, we don't have good broadband here and we really need it. You need that if you're going to, you know, a lot of the, 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 the kinds of businesses that might be able to flourish uh, even in remote areas, if they had good broadband, they can't because they don't have they don't have reliable connections. And so that is something that that is genuinely important. And the Biden administration is spending tens of billions of dollars to bring broadband to underserved areas. And so they're doing all these things. It doesn't get a lot of attention. You know, Biden will do some kind of event where he'll go to where where one of these projects is starting up. And, you know, it might get on a page a 19 of the newspaper. It won't get on the national news. Um but if you know some Democrat says something insulting about people in rural areas, then it will get on the news. And so they don't get a lot of credit for the stuff that they do. And Republicans, they don't really feel like they have to. Again, it's the same kind of story as it is on the local level. You know, Donald Trump doesn't have a plan for rural development on his website. Uh, he knows that he's got those people. He doesn't have to, you know, provide them any kind of material benefits. So. Uh, Democrats are doing it anyway, even if they're not getting the political reward. Um, because they think it's the right thing to do, and they, uh, you know, they they would like to to get some reward. And the, and the trouble is, it, it's a high hurdle. You know, we talked about the the resources, but politicians and campaigns are always making those kind of decisions. Where 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 should we spend that last dollar? But there are cases where uh, it it does work. You know, for instance, there was a recent Supreme Court election in Wisconsin. Uh, that was uh, extremely important. It decided control of the Supreme Court of the state of Wisconsin, which in turn has now led to uh, new legislative maps being drawn that eliminated what was probably the worst, most un incredibly unfair gerrymander in the entire country that allowed Republicans to lose, to get fewer votes in elections for a state legislature and still hold on to almost two thirds of the seats, seats in the legislature. So now that's gone because of the Supreme Court election. So it was really important. And one of the things that happened was uh, that the Wisconsin Democratic Party put made a big push in rural areas for that Supreme Court seat. And they managed to pump up their numbers by, you know, five, six points in different areas. And that led to what turned out to be, uh, I think, a 10 or 12 point win on the state level. Problem is, though, that those opportunities don't come along very often. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it matters in statewide races. And I think that should be a lot of the Democrats focus where where even a little bit of help in rural areas can really make a difference. Well, just in closing, I should restate it. It's not that the Democrats haven't stepped up. It's just that they haven't really taken the gloves off and told rural America how they're getting lied to and hosed by the Republicans. So um, my apologies, because I know your book makes that clear. And I thank you for joining <laughs> us, uh, Paul. It's my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Waldman, who's a journalist and opinion writer whose work has appeared in dozens of newspapers, magazines, and digital outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, The Week, MSNBC, and CNN. And he's a former columnist at the Washington Post and the author or co-author of four previous books on media and politics, including Being Right is Not Enough, What Progressives Must Learn from Conservative Success, and The Press Effect, Politicians, Journalists, and the Stories that Shape the Political World. His latest book, just out on Tuesday, Tuesday, co-authored with Tom Schaller, is White Rule Rage, The Threat to American Democracy. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into the latest round of sanctions against Russia and why they're not working since China, India and Brazil are buying discounted and smuggled Russian oil. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. Dollar buys a nickel's worth. Bang!
banks and going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe. Our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christian Aberley, who's a professor at New England Law School, teaching contracts and international business transactions. She has worked at several law firms in business litigation and international trade and sanctions law, and is the author of The Russia Sanctions, The Economic Response to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christine Aberley. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, President Biden some time back promised or threatened, I guess, that if anything happens to Navalny, there'd be a new round of sanctions. I guess he was trying to somehow protect Navalny from Putin, but Putin decided to kill Navalny to coincide with the Munich Security Conference at which uh, Zelensky and Navalny's now widow spoke along with Vice President um, Harris. So what's your sense, though, of how these 500-plus new sanctions are going to work? Because there's a sense about sanctions in general that they're more to do with the country that's issuing them to make us feel good that we're doing something when our options are usually limited. I think that these sanctions are quite significant um, and they will achieve some real gains in the sense that one can realistically achieve sanctions to expect. So certainly sanctions aren't a perfect tool. They certainly can't take the place of military action, right, or military aid. They're, They're not Uh, Certainly, they can't achieve those effects. But what they can do is reduce the resources available to Russia, and they can tighten already existing sanctions measures and make those existing measures more effective. So um, some of the things we see in the latest package of sanctions, for example, are sanctions not just on um, Russian entities and individuals, but on companies and individuals in third-party nations for assisting with the Russian uh, military effort, for evading sanctions, for providing export-controlled items or items from foreign countries in support of the war effort. So that's something that really does try to address this ongoing problem of evasion and to to tighten uh, existing measures. Well, the Ukrainians, and I guess by extension, uh, the West is learning from the North Korean missiles that the Russians are using, that they're full of chips from Western sources. And the assumption is that the sanctions are being skirted by China, who's providing the uh, Russians with chips. So how do you close that door? 
Certainly. And I think that that's something that the sanctions package recognizes and certainly is trying to address. So, for example, in the sanctions package, we see um, the sanctioning of Russian-based entities who've been involved in the transfer of arms from North Korea to Russia to try to address um, that issue. We do see the sanctioning of certain companies in China based on their shipping of foreign origin microelectronics to Russia. Um, we see the sanctioning of an Iranian entity um, for its role in a drone procurement network. So that's something that these sanctions um, are naming new targets in connection with in trying to address those issues. But Putin is getting the bulk of his revenues to keep this war going and to keep his economy going. Uh, and the economy certainly hasn't collapsed. It's under stress, but it hasn't collapsed. Uh, and in fact, I think it's making, what, 1% growth? But the culprits, if you will, are India, China, and Brazil, who are buying discounted Russian oil. The Russians are discounting their oil at about $60 a barrel and they're shipping it through what they, what's called a shadow fleet, which happens to be a bunch of old tankers, which, and that's an accident waiting to happen, frankly. So what's being done to curb that? And ostensibly, well, certainly India is supposed to be an ally in the quad. What kind of pressure can you put on India? And I'm not sure there's much you can do about Brazil's Lula because he's an old-fashioned Marxist who probably thinks that Putin is a socialist. Definitely. So the revenue from Russian origin crude oil is certainly something that the sanctioning nations have been trying to address. And they did so initially through the use of a price cap, um, which continued to allow for the shipment of Russian origin oil using G7 service providers, but only below certain prices. And that mechanism um, has certainly become less effective um, since the time it was initially implemented. And so um, on Friday, Treasury released um, a document which highlighted the second phase of the implementation of the price cap, which was started in October of 2023. So what um, the sanctioning nations are really trying to do is still to continue to have Russian origin oil shipped around the world, because that's beneficial to the world energy markets and making sure that oil prices um, elsewhere don't overly spike. However, what they're really trying to do is to increase that discount on the Russian origin oil as much as possible in order to try to reduce the revenue um, to the greatest extent possible. Um, so they've had some success in doing so, and that's certainly something that the sanctioning nations are going to redouble and continue their efforts to try to make sure that the revenue accruing from Russia is as low as possible while still trying to um, keep that supply on the market um, and sold around the world. So... What about the Emirates, though, and Turkey and other countries that are, are helping broker all kinds of deals behind the scenes? And obviously, Iran is supplying drones and missiles now, is under really serious sanctions from the US and much of the EU. So what's being done, for example, about the UAW? So one thing that the this most recent package of sanctions and export controls included were sanctions on parties uh, in those countries who aided in 
Russian sanctions evasion, but also export controls, where now uh, certain parties in China and Turkey and the UAE, um, as well as Russia, will now require a license to receive um, most items from the US. Um, and there is a review policy of denial. Um, licenses are reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis. So what those export controls are trying to do is to limit the US origin items that those parties can now lawfully obtain from the United States. The idea being that once they are now restricted from obtaining those goods, they'll no longer be able to ship them on to Russia. Um, and I think that what we're going to see moving forward, as well as uh, additional export controls, is we'll likely see the in increased imposition of secondary sanctions, where the sanctioning nations will be trying to force um, parties in third party nations to make a choice between supplying goods to Russia's military industrial base or from continuing to do business with the sanctioning nations. So some uh, analysts are suggesting that these sanctions are symbolic and not necessarily having much practical value in crimping the Russian economy's performance, which, as I mentioned, I think it's, is it right that the economy is growing at 1% as, as opposed to tanking, which is the whole purpose of these sanctions, to, is to put pain on Putin, or at least on the Russian people, so that they do something about Putin. They're not going to do anything because it's a police state, and I'm not sure that Putin cares. I mean, he's determined to continue this war the other day, his mini-me, former president Medvedev, said that we're going to take Kiev and, and we're going to take Odessa. So is there anything that we're missing here that could really get Putin's attention? Well, I think that it's important to be realistic about what sanctions can achieve. I think that they are unlikely to completely cause a collapse of the Russian economy. They are, um, historically speaking, very unlikely to trigger a regime change. But what they have succeeded in doing is freezing billions of dollars of assets of the Russian Central Bank that would otherwise be available to Russia. Um, there has been inflation in Russia in recent months. Um, we see Russia diverting resources and placing more resources, resources into military production, uh, which does uh, reflect uh, growth, certainly, in the Russian economy. But it's not uh, perhaps long-term growth, uh, which is a, a good economic foundation, will likely see greater effects in the long term as well, based on restrictions in investment, based on restrictions um, on exports of technology and higher tech items to Russia. And so I think while sanctions have not and are unlikely to cause a collapse of the Russian economy. What they have done, certainly, for example, is um, reduced the revenue that Russia has accrued from the sales of its oils. There is that uh, gap between uh, the uh, price of Russian origin oil and other oil on the market. Um, and we do see these sanctions um, addressing specifically Russian military production and sanctioning those entities as well. So I think that there have certainly been real gains that have been achieved by the sanctions to date. Well, it's been uh, reported in an, and analyzed by various transparency groups 
that uh, Putin is the richest man on the planet, although perhaps Mohammed bin Salman would give him a run for his money. But nevertheless, assuming that Putin is the richest man on the planet and that what he does is, as a kind of mob boss, he regulates the oligarchs who are used as cutouts in the weaponization of money, um, investing in campaigns like Brexit and here in the United States in in campaigns. And we don't even know how many of the Republicans are now stopping aid to Ukraine, whether the, somehow or other they're getting Russian money, because that's unfortunately since Citizens United it's hard to track all this uh, offshore money and dark money. So what's your understanding about this new package of sanctions in terms of going after Putin's oligarchs? Well, I think that uh, the earlier packages of sanctions with respect to the oligarchs, um, I think certainly they reduce the ability of those oligarchs to access funds. Um, but you're correct that the oligarchs have not, in fact, uh, deposed uh, deposed Putin, certainly. Um, and I, so I think that there is that limitation as well um, to what the sanctions on oligarchs can realistically achieve. So we certainly see high profile um, symbols of those sorts of sanctions uh, as in terms of the yacht seizures and so forth. And um, But I, what I think are really more significant to the um, economic response to Russia are the sanctions not on um, individual oligarchs, but sanctions on uh, Russian energy production, sanctions on investment, sanctions on Russian financial institutions, I think are the most significant, along with sanctions on weapons producers, are the most significant um, sanctions that have been placed on Russia to date. So on Thursday, the Deputy Treasury Secretary, Wally Adeyemo, he said that sanctions alone can only slow down Russia, but that the G7, the group of seven, are discussing the most legally viable way to use Russian money to benefit Ukraine. And he's talking about, I think it's like between what three and six hundred million that's frozen uh, in European and American banks. Is do you have a figure on how it's, much? Um, I don't have the figure that's up for seizure. Um, so I know that there's. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure of the the number. Right, but the the point is, can they do it? Can, is there anything that Putin can do to retaliate? Because it sounds like if Mike Johnson, the new speaker who's taking his orders from Trump, seems determined to stop aid to Ukraine, uh, the fallback, I assume, is going to be trying to unfreeze this money and send that to Ukraine. Yeah, I think that that's we've certainly heard voices calling for the seizure of Russian assets rather than merely the freezing. Um, so freezing is it's something that's very well accepted and very standard um, in terms of sanctions. But we really haven't seen a wholesale seizure of assets where they're not linked to some other criminal activity, where they're not linked to some sort of other um forfeiture action, for example. Um, so that's something that is uh, quite controversial, and there's been a number of legal discussions. It's unclear at this point whether that's something that would be considered legal to achieve, or perhaps whether there would be the need for additional legislation um, to be able to affect that. Um, there is uh, talk, uh, particularly in the EU, of um, uh, 
of of addressing not the frozen assets themselves, but the interest on frozen assets. So that might be a more tenable solution. Um, but I think that this debate really serves to underline the importance of military aid, uh, right? Uh, because there are certainly rule of law concerns associated with the seizure of Western assets were that to be affected. Um, and so military aid is critically important and serves um, a, a truly a unique role. Well, Christian Abelie, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I may speak with Christian Abelie, who's a professor at New England Law School teaching contracts and international business transactions. She has worked at several law firms in business litigation, international trade and sanctions law, and is the author of The Russian Sanctions, The Economic Response to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.